Welcome to the Fort Lauderdale Primary Purpose Study Group's Thursday Night Alcoholics and God Speaker Step Series. My name is Steve. I'm an alcoholic. Uh, thank you for joining us tonight. Oh, well, let's have our joke. Hi, I'm Dave. I am your alcoholic joke teller. An angry newcomer was feeling ill and went to the doctor. The doctor examined him and backed away, saying, I'm sorry to tell you this, but you have an advanced case of highly infectious rabies. It will almost certainly be fatal. Immediately, the newcomer drove over to his sponsor's house and knocked on the door. Could you give me a pen and paper, he asked the sponsor. Do you want to write your eighth step list, asked the sponsor. No, the newcomer said, I want to make a list of all the people I want to bite. Long setup. <laughs> all right, thanks for joining us tonight. In a minute, we're going to start our two minute meditation, so please take a moment to get situated. Please turn off all devices that will make noise and that might or will distract others. We take this time to get connected to God, to let the craziness of the day drift away, and to ask God to help you stay focused on this tonight's step study. Is everybody ready? Okay, let's start the meditation.
lead you in the fog light prayer. For those that don't know it, it's up on the screen. God. Uh, there is a solution from the big book, page 17. The tremendous fact for every one of us is that we have discovered a common solution. We have a way out on which we can absolutely agree and upon which we can join in brotherly and harmonious action. This is the great news this book carries to those who suffer from alcoholism. I have asked Garrett to read Appendix 2, Spiritual Experience. We read this because the main purpose of the 12 steps is to have one. So it's really important to know what one is. Spiritual experience. The terms spiritual experience and spiritual awakening are used many times in this book, which upon, upon careful reading shows that the per personality change sufficient to bring about recovery from alcoholism has manifested itself among us in many different forms. Yet it is true that our first printing gave many readers the impression that these personality changes or religious experiences must be in the nature of sudden and spectacular up upheavals. Happily for everyone, this conclusion is erroneous, erroneous, and in the first few chapters, a number of sudden revolutionary changes are described. Though it was not our intention to create such an impression, many alcoholics have nevertheless concluded that in order to recover, they must acquire an immediate and overwhelming God consciousness, followed at once by a vast change in feeling and outlook. Among our rapidly growing membership of thousands of alcoholics, such transformations, though frequent, are by no means the rule. Most of our experiences are what the psychologist William James calls the educational variety because they develop slowly over a period of time. Quite often, friends of the newcomer are aware of the difference long before he is himself. He finally realizes that he has undergone a profound alteration in his reaction to life, that such a change could hardly have been brought about by himself alone. What often takes place in a few months could seldom have been accomplished by years of self-discipline. With few exceptions, our members find that they have tapped an unsuspected inner resource which they presently identify with their own conception of a power greater than themselves. Most of us think this awareness of a power greater than ourselves is the essence of spiritual experience. Our more religious members call it God consciousness. Most emphatically, we wish to say that any alcoholic capable of honestly facing his problems in the light of our experience can recover, provided he does not close his mind to all spiritual concepts. He can only be defeated by an attitude of intolerance or belligerent denial. We find that no one need have difficulty with the spirituality of the program. Willingness, honesty, and open-mindedness are the essentials of recovery, but these are indispensable. There is a principle which is a bar against all information, which is proof against all arguments, and which cannot fail to keep a man in everlasting ignorance. That principle is content prior to investigation. Thank you. Thank you, Gary. Okay, please refrain from disturbing others by talking or constantly getting up and sitting back down. This is a tech-free meeting, so set your front... <laughs> set your phones to airplane mode or just shut them off. Um, I'm honored to get to introduce Peter tonight. I've learned by his words and, and his actions, and you can too. So with no further ado, Peter. 
My name is Peter, recovered alcoholic. Grateful to be alive and sober and part of a sacred place called Alcoholics Anonymous. And again, thank the group for having me back uh, to share with you over the next uh, 10 weeks or so um, on the good news that was brought to me. And hopefully I can get to share that over the next 10 weeks, uh, 11 weeks, whatever it is. Um, the good news was brought to me uh, by many folks, but I wasn't listening. Um, I had been through seven treatment centers up until 1988 when God got me sober, June 23rd, 1988. And uh, a lot of the H&I folks would come in and bring meetings at night. And uh, I was in a place of... Uh, not listening. I, I didn't want to hear this information. I would more than bristle with antagonism when they talked about God. Uh, I didn't concede to my innermost self in my first few treatment centers. In fact, uh, I was so far removed from looking for help, I thought it was a real inconvenience to be even talking about a solution to this because I had no plans of stopping. Um, I remember back in the day, some of you older folks might remember a show called Miami Vice. Um, it was on a Friday night at 9 o'clock, and Don Johnson was my higher power. And H&I uh, and &I would come in at 8 o'clock, and they would leave at 9. And, you know, AAs, we like to talk after the meeting and have coffee, and it really annoyed me. So what I put on the board one time was Miami Vice, 9 p.m., speakers, please leave promptly so I could sit down and watch something that had some substance because this AA stuff was ridiculous. Um, I thought um, at one point AA was a cult. I, I was swear that the H&I folks were high when they came in. Uh, there's no way someone would give up a Friday night to bring a meeting to a bunch of knuckleheads sitting in a detox. It's impossible. No one's that good. And so I walked with a lot of this venom. Um, where that came about, I don't know. Perhaps it was always there. Um, but it wasn't until June of 88, June 23rd, 1980. Thank you, God, for that day where my whole life changed, and I didn't see it coming. Um, from my first drink, uh, which gave me some freedom, a sense of relief, and we were just talking about this the other night. It was a sense of relief. Was it really relief? Probably not. Threw me into bondage of alcoholism. But there was a sense of I escaped my current environment for a while. Now, at 14 years old, what possible environment must you escape for most 14-year-olds? Until I come into AA, and we were all trying to do the same thing, whether it was the household was a mess or mostly, like me, the noise in the head. My perceptions and conception of everything were wrong. If you told me the sky was blue, I saw, I saw black. It, it just I didn't see things as they were. And one of the cool things about waking up spiritually, we get to report things as they are, good or bad. And we can go further than that and look for the all of God in everything. But 1988, when I got to Alcoholics Anonymous, I was messy, not only just from the effects of drink uh, and pills and the other things I was doing uh, years earlier, uh, but what was going on in my head was not good. Um, I really didn't think I had a chance to recover um, like other folks. I didn't think I was smart enough. Uh, I looked at my family and how I grew up and how messy that was, and I really didn't think I had a chance of doing this. In fact, the people who would come in and bring meetings or when they would take us out to meetings, you guys spoke so well. You articulated your thoughts so well. You used really fancy language like let go and let God. I never heard of that before. You know, logical things like first things first. Take it to God. And this is new language to me. It just sounded like everyone was a Harvard graduate in, in AA. And I come from Brooklyn. I spent 10 minutes in college. 
I have no degrees. I have no money. I have no job. I have no girlfriend. And I'm sitting in treatment thinking I'm like the unicorn until I listened closely and we were all the same. Whether it was Park Avenue, Park Bench. My first drink, as I said last week, uh, at 14 years old, with Cold 45 beer, um, uh, it electrified me. I'd never been drunk before, and now I get drunk, and I taste drunk, and I feel drunk, and I like the effects produced by being drunk. I was numb. I was in a cocoon, and life wasn't hurting. <clears throat> what was going on with me was a lot of turmoil. And I've heard enough of our stories over the years. I know you guys identify with the, the brokenness we walk in here. In fact, AA, we, what we really lock into is our shared woundedness when we get here, the brokenness, the, the valleys we hit, the, the turmoil, the trauma we walk in here with. And I'm not saying that's why I'm an alcoholic, but it's just part of the story. My perceptions and conceptions were off for a lot had to do with that. But uh, by the time I, I pick up my first drink at, at 14 years old, uh, our, my mom uh, took her life about six months earlier. She was one of us, never found Alcoholics Anonymous. She found shrink after shrink after shrink after institution after institution. I don't know how many she was in. Ran away from a lot of them. I remember one time we were in Amityville, Long Island, and uh, it was me, my dad, and my two younger brothers. They were little guys, and we had a little German shepherd. And we went to see mom for the day, and she talked them into giving her a little day pass so we can take her for lunch. And we stopped uh, at uh, a little place to eat, and my mom took off and ran into the woods. I think about it now, it's actually, uh, it's, it's kind of obscene that this grown woman with three children and a husband, a little dog in the car, on her way to a restaurant, she runs away, crosses the highway and runs into the woods, and we can't find her. And I'm, I'm all but maybe, I don't know, 10 or 11. And my dad's in panic because he's trying to keep an eye on us. The dog's looking to run away, and my, he can't find his wife. I mean, this is not a good environment to grow up in. And there were many stories like that. And seeing my mom come home from the hospital with the, the wrists all, all taped up and bandaged and stitched up from trying to uh, cut her wrists and the ODs and all of that. And uh, by the time I show up to a street corner at 14, I have a lot of secrets because I don't believe anyone in my neighborhood knows what's going on. They all did. Around ages 8 to 10, I was being touched repeatedly and appropriately by some man. So I had that secret. There's no way you're going to talk about that. In fact, I was threatened by this guy. If I was to say something, what was going to happen to me? And I wouldn't anyway, because my friends, I know, would think less of me. They would think something really poor about me. And my image was important. And I was petrified of my dad. And I remember thinking many times, or feeling, I should say, growing up, I had nowhere to turn. Can't tell a school teacher they would call home. I don't know if they do that anymore, but I know they would call home. I didn't want to go down to the guidance office because my parents would find out. So you just kind of walk with it in your front like everything's okay and about to explode on the inside. Not feeling really good about the things that happened to me, the things I saw, the, 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 the crying at night with my mom repeatedly saying how much she wanted to die. would come home from school many times at around 3 or 3.30, and my mom would either have like uh, uh, dance music on. I remember growing up with Dion. And, and, and listening to Dion, or she would have this country western music on, you know, the I Want to Die Now music with a you know, banjo in the background. Um, and uh, uh, she asked me to sit on her lap, and she would talk about dying. When you're seven or eight, that's not a good message to get. 
you know. And so you're walking, you grow up feeling like you're walking on thin ice. It, it's gonna, something bad's gonna happen today. And um, in January 1974, that day happened. So uh, about six months later, um, I'm walking around with this um, noise in the head. I gotta talk to somebody, I don't know who. Uh, we didn't talk about my mom's, and I literally mean this, we didn't talk about my mom's death until I was sober, probably seven years. My brother called to sit down with my dad, so we, we need to flush this out. It was, it was the elephant in the living room. All the furniture keeps moving around, but no one's going to talk about it. We're too afraid to talk about it. It might upset dad. It might upset the grandparents. And my brother called a meeting. So nothing was ever discussed. And I, I remember walking around with this in, in grade school, uh, just, just, torn, just torn up on the inside. Uh, and I, that's when I began um, uh, punching walls. I used to put my fist through walls. I'd get into a rage. I wouldn't hit anybody. And i start to punch walls and put my fist through walls and cut my hands open and things like that until one spring summer night I drank cold 45 beer and everything was wonderful. I didn't know what I was in for. I saw the older guys drinking. They seemed to be joyous, happy, and free drinking. I saw the girls drinking, and the guys and the girls were kind of mingling, really close and flirting and getting real cuddly on the corner. I said, that looks good. They do this every night, and they seem to be having a good time, and I'm walking around with a lot of noise. And uh, so I don't know what I'm in for, but I don't want to get like they are. And halfway through a quart of beer, I'm feeling what they felt, and I loved it. I knew nothing about allergy, knew nothing about obsession, know nothing about spiritual malady. I really don't want to hear the word God because I'm fed up with God. He just took my mom, left me with a dad who's cunning, baffling, and powerful, and I'm terrified of. This is a mistake, except for right now, Saturday night, I feel good for the very first time. I had no idea my drinking was going to assume more serious proportions. Who knows that on your first drunk? I mean, even if you grew up with alcoholic parents like I did, my mom was alcoholic, narcotic user, the whole nine you still don't think it's going to happen to me, especially the first time out. But that's all it took. I tasted the honey. I didn't want to leave it. And by the time I finished a quart of beer, I'm drunk and I'm loving it, every minute of it. I felt bigger and stronger, and I felt in control. This is the thing about me being drunk. I felt in control. I'm out of control, but I felt in control. And that piece to control my environment was for one reason. I feel safe if I can control my environment. No one can hurt me anymore. No one can say bad things to me. I'm in control. I feel stronger so they'll be afraid of me. And I'm trying to control what's not controllable. That's life. That's living in delusion. I walk right into AA that way and I, I can be that way in AA. Going to meetings, sponsoring people with a threat of I need to control everything. The sponsees, the sponsor, what my boss thinks of me, what people think of me. I will put up an image. I will say certain things to get an effect from you so I feel like I'm in control. It's impossible. And that's why I have more noise in the head and I'm wound up way too tight. But when I drank that night, that was, that was not an issue. I felt in control. I am controlling my environment. No one can hurt me. I'm invincible. I mean, I really felt like I was probably like about five foot seven at the time. I felt like 6'3", 220. I had the beer muscles. I was like Snoop, Paul, Snoop Dogg and Al Pacino rolled into one. It was just beautiful. I, was, I got some courage. I was able to talk to those pretty girls on the corner. They just got a kick out of me. Who's this little kid? 
you know. I can man up with the other guys. It was wonderful. But the big thing it did, besides giving me a sense of control, was I wasn't thinking about my mom. I wasn't thinking about this terrible fear I had of my dad. I wasn't thinking about anything. I was very present to the moment, which I loved. I had no idea it was going to turn in his flight. As Bill says, like a boomerang and cut me to ribbons. And I chased that elusive feeling to jail and institution after institution after institution. And the level of my climb, decline was quick. It didn't take me a long time to get into the bottom. I got introduced to non-conference approved dry goods, and that was just, an, just a vacuum that sucked me right down into gutter level living. My outlook on life was in the gutter. My hygiene was in the gutter. My language was in the gutter. I had no respect for men, no respect for women. All I knew, I'd do one thing. I need to get what I need now, and I'll pay any price tomorrow to seek comfort right now. And I still think I'm in control. You know, if I, if, I can, if, I, if I can score some money, I'm in control. When I'm buying what I'm buying, I'm in control. I'm completely out of control. The wheels are off the bus. But the alcoholic me lives under delusion and illusion 24-7. And that's why some people look at us like, what are you doing? What's, what's wrong with you? What part of this don't you get? And we think they're wrong. I remember driving home, uh, I don't know, two, three-day drunk, and um, I had this thing called a matter. Remember the Matadors back in the day? It was a matter. It was a moving violation. And it went from zero to 60 in three days. It was one of those cars. And if you went too fast, the front hood would pop up. <laughs> And uh, it had no muffler, and I'm, I'm living in Staten Island, this big winding turn to make a left down my block, and you hear me coming from, you know, a mile away. And um, I got the film on me, you know, when you're out there, for, you got that film on you, and you reek, you got the alcoholic breath, and I got no money, and I got the whole, all of it going on. And as I, I'm, I'm turning the corner, all these people are lined up, it's like 7 in the morning, to go to work. And they had these buses called the X-10, X-13, X-11. These were express buses from Staten Island, New York, to Lower Manhattan, Midtown, all working people, dressed in suits, attache cases, to go uh, uh, earn a living. They owned homes. They had families. They were trying to make their way. And I'm looking at them like they're losers, what lives they got, living under delusion. And I say a lot of this because when we get to step two, even though I'm sober, I can still live in a place of insanity, which is step one. Still looking to control my environment. I know these are the rules, but they're different for me. I know everyone said we're going there, but I can go here. I know everyone gets caught, but I won't. I know I'm supposed to pray and meditate, but I don't need to. Everyone's telling me do the steps. I suffer from an illness which only a spiritual experience would conquer, but I could wait. I'll do it tomorrow. I'll do it tomorrow. I'll do it tomorrow, and then tomorrow's today, and it's too late. I learned a long time ago. I, I was born July 14th, 1959. The moment I popped out of mama, I was on the clock. I'm running out of time. As soon as I popped out, and I'm sure the doctor hit me on the fanny so I get a breath, I'm already on the clock, and I'm running out of time. And now I blow up my life. I come into AA, and I think I get all the time in the world, not knowing that alcohol, uh, alcoholism is in pursuit of me and cannot stand the sight of me sitting in an AA meeting sober. It'll get me through a relationship. It'll get me through money. It'll get me through anything it can, because that's what alcoholism does. Wants me dead, will settle for me drunk. So here I am in Alcoholics Anonymous. I'm still trying to manage and control my life and people. The way I control my life is by controlling what you say and do. That's insanity. 
I'm an alcoholic, cannot manage my own life, and God could have would if he was so. What am I doing to seek this God? I've had many folks come up to me when I would do a, a weekend workshop and say, I don't know if I can do the steps. I have a problem with God. I resent God. I identify with that. But I had to get over it. I had, a new, I had to get a new set of perceptions and conceptions about God because my life depended upon I had the luxury of saying, well, I don't, want, I don't believe in God. I have a problem with God, so I'll do it my way. I'll work my program. My program will kill me. The book's program will save me. And the subtlety is the way this mind, this predator, the mind is a four-letter word. It is the biggest enemy that I'll ever face. It's up in here. And the biggest enemy I ever will ever face. It manufactures misery, turmoil, resentments, jealousy, the seven deadly sins all day long. And you can tell how well I'm doing by my actions, which are dictated from my mind. My thought life creates my current reality. That's what it does. And I go back to it again and again, and the narratives get bigger and noisier, and I keep returning to it. The, the, this mind, the, the, the very same mind that tells me it's going to fill the hole is the very same mind that keeps digging the hole. And I'm wondering how come I'm confused it's, it, 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 it suffers from duality. One day it wants to be Moses, and the next day it wants to be Rambo. You leave a workshop, I'm going to start getting into the steps, I'm going to get a sponsor, and I'm going to find God, and then Monday morning comes, I'll do it next week. I don't know if I want to live that strict. I don't know if I want to do all this work. There's a fourth step involved. I don't really want to do it. I'll wait. I'll get to it. And I delude myself into thinking I'm okay, like the boy whistling in the dark. This is all step one stuff. When I show up to step two, it is not a happy, joyous occasion when I get to step two. Like, oh my God, I wrecked my life. I need a God. Step two, I can't throw the party. It's not, it's not a, 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 a great day showing up to step two. I got to step two basically scratching and clawing. This thing better work because I'm in a lot of trouble if it don't. And I'm st- I still got step one all over me, if you will, my story all over me, and there is no relief. I'm not drinking, but no relief because the noise in the head was getting louder and louder and louder, and the spring was getting tighter and tighter, and I have no booze to pour on that. As soon as I get sober, the first person I meet is me. And I would hear people talking about their outlook on life in Alcoholics Anonymous, not the newcomers. That's no disrespect for newcomers, by the way, but the folks who are on this path a while. And their outlook on life was vastly different than the way I was seeing things. They were sure about God. They were practicing fidelity to God and experienced God's fidelity to them. They were being faithful to practice and experience the faithfulness of the practice to them. They had homes. They were impeccable. They cared about people. They had hope for the future. I don't identify with this because I'm on the other side of the scale. I know this whole thing is going to blow up, and I walk with that impending doom all the time. Sober and Alcoholics Anonymous during my first six months. And what happens to me? I need an escape valve. So I developed, I started to develop this eating disorder. I'm binging and purging the sprees, sex sprees, food sprees, all sorts of sprees, just to deal with this moment, because this moment I can't deal with. I need something, and I can't drink yet. I can't drug yet. So I get freedom, I get release, I get controlled by eating, and then purging. And it's happening all the time, and I'm getting sick from it. 
And I remember, you know, going through seven treatment centers, I would hear people talk about this. And predominantly, what I, what I experienced was that most of the women talked about eating disorder. I don't remember hearing a man saying, I've been eating disorder. So now I'm thinking, oh my God, I have a woman's disease. I can't tell anybody. <laughs> There's women only, men don't get eating disorder. Who, who do I talk to? What do I do now? And the pain got great. And I was getting physically ill, really ill from it. The secret came out. Because the truth always finds us. I can't heal what I don't reveal. That's why they say they were sick as our secrets. It's plaque on the soul. But when the pain gets great enough and my knees buckle and I drop on bending knees, somebody help me. Here's what's going on. It feels like, oh, my God, everyone's going to walk out of the room. They say, just like me, come on in. I can breathe again. Sober, I'm doing this stuff. Sitting in an AA meeting. How are you doing, Pete? Good. I'm good. Yeah, everything's up. So happy to be here. I'm going to go home and be sick. And I was sick this morning. Self-induced crisis. So we can just look at the booze, and as a newcomer, that's all I did was look at the booze. I'm not drinking, I'm a winner. No, you're not drinking today, you're a winner. Well, let's, let's talk about that. It's great you're not drinking, but winner? A little narcissistic. I didn't have 30 days, I'm a winner. No, you didn't drink for 30 days. I, I just put this out there for someone's new, and I, I swear, I, don't, I hope this doesn't come out sideways. When you're counting days, like I did, we're thrilled you're here. I hope you're thrilled you're here. And we want to tell people we're doing good, and we are. We're not drinking. We have hope. But you don't have to fake it. We know at 30 days you're not that good. Not that you're a bad person, but there's stuff going on. 60 days, we know you're not that good. Some of us who've been around a while say, 60 days, i got to gauge where they are right now. I know they're smiling, they look clean, but if we open them up, the head is messy right now. That's why we encourage people to get sponsors right away. I'd rather a guy come up to me and say, i got 60 days, I'm falling apart. I get you, sit down, we'll have some coffee, we can work. We have to be glossy. We never have to be glossy in AA. That's the mind at work again, because it comes in through the back door. So in 1988, uh, I landed my seven treatment center, and uh, I was away for a year. You know, I went from Amityville, Long Island, out to uh, Minnesota, uh, St. Paul, and then they took me to a town called Hastings, Minnesota, and I lived out there for, it was a one-horse town. Uh, town population was me and a cow, that's about it. Um, I remember going for a haircut, and I went into my pocket. I didn't, I forgot money back at the halfway house. And I was mortified. And she says, that's okay. Come in when you can and pay me. I said, we're not in New York anymore. <laughs> and it's the kind of town it was, you know. And it was kind of like Andy Griffin. It was Mayberry, and I kind of dug it. And about a year later, I was invited back home. And, you know, I felt like I was going live again. And I had to get a sponsor. Because the language you were talking was now appealing to me. It wasn't appealing to the mind, but the soul was acknowledging what it always knew. It was just a knowing we get. We do that all the time in AA when someone shares and we give that AA like, yes, that nod. It's a knowing. The soul knows it, knew it forever. And we're just acknowledging truth. 
It's not a conclusion of the mind, like I'm going to use that at the next meeting. That's a conclusion of the mind. It's just something that's almost visceral. Yes, I know exactly what they're talking about. How do I know what they're talking about with 60 days? Because the soul knows. The soul's always right. The soul's the one that brought me in here. The soul's... I, what God does, he closes the ears to the mind and open up the ears to the soul. And that's why we, when we can hear it now, and little by slowly, I chop wood, carry wood, and I start to reveal to a sponsor or support group, some friends, what's going on with me? I did this yesterday. I've been feeling this way today. And we start to heal. It, it dies in the light. And over and over and over again, when we feel, when I have felt my most weakest and most, most vulnerable and way too transparent is when I find God's strength and light. I'm leaning all the way in. I'm completely dependent upon it. He says, well done. He doesn't do uh, the big book with my spine. Begin this journey from the beginning of the book up to page 43. And I got a little bit of a history. Uh, a lot of it was too much for me to grasp at the very beginning. But I was paying close attention to when they talked about step one, which is 43 pages plus doctor's opinion. And leaving the drink question aside, I found out why living was so unsatisfactory in Alcoholics Anonymous sober. And I'm not, I'm not using. I'm sober. I'm sitting in the meetings. I'm making two and three meetings a day, and I'm not okay. I'm not okay. And I thought that's all I had to do was show up to a meeting and remain abstinent, and everything was just going to be wonderful. It got worse. Because alcoholism, I wasn't pouring anything on it. It starts to bubble to the surface, and I'm starting to hear through it and see through it and act through it, and nothing's good. I'm traveling heavy, again, making meetings. What do you do? And six months into this deal, uh, only by God's grace did I not pick up a drink. I was on uh, driving something called a rent -a wreck That's what they call them, rent -a wrecks in, in Minnesota. It, it looked like a wreck, and I rented it. Um, and uh, I had very little money, so I needed to get around. And I'm driving somewhere in Minneapolis, and I can't take this. I'm going to meetings. I'm sharing at meetings. I'm lying. I'm telling everyone how wonderful I'm doing. And I leave the meeting, and I, I just, I, uh, why am I in Minnesota? What am I doing? And uh, I'm, I'm going to just get a drink in me. The heck with all of this. And so I'm driving in this car. There's a lot of bars on the strip. And I say, okay, next bar. I'll go to the next bar. I don't like that. I'll go to the next one. And uh, God was interrupting this. I said, well, you know what? I won't go to the bar. Anybody I see dealing, I'll just get something. Whatever they're dealing, who's ever doing a jitterbug, I'll get what they got, and I'll just, you know, cop and go kind of thing. And I kept driving, and I got onto, uh, it's called Highway 61, and I headed to a town called Cottage Grove, and I'm praying, God, please, please, please. I don't want to drink today, but I'm going to drink today. And I get on Highway 61, I head towards the town coach, Cotter's Grove, and I knock on this guy's door, and he's, come on in. And, you know, when you're new, you just purge. Here's my life. It's falling apart again. And uh, I've shared this many times, and when I came up for air and paused, he said, Peter, where are you with God in the 12 steps? I says, when do you start the steps? He says, when you stop throwing up, you're late. What I wanted was a hug. Let's talk about it some more. We'll make more coffee. He gave me the truth. He cared more about my life than I did at that moment. He didn't care too much about my feelings. If he was going to hurt my feelings or bruise my feelings, he had somebody dying in front of him, and only the truth was going to suffice at this point. It was no time to coddle. He didn't take a cheap shot. 
when you stop throwing up your late is pretty direct. I didn't like the answer. I almost walked out, but something in here, the soul said he's right. And I started to be attracted to the men who were talking about this message in Alcoholics Anonymous. And most of the men I ran into out there were talking about the message, which meant they were talking about God, and they looked and sounded impeccable. They dressed so nice for the podium. If they were married, they wore uh, uh, wedding rings. When I grew up in Brooklyn, any man who wore a wedding ring was kind of like his wife owned him. It wasn't a macho. I know that sounds ridiculous, but it's where I grew up. If you're married and you, you don't wear a wedding ring if you're a man, the wife has to. So I thought it was a macho thing. And I'm watching these AA men with watches and rings on, shirt and tie, laughing and weeping at the podium, telling their story completely transparent and giving all credit to God. He's, how do we get on that team? I want to be, I idolize these men. I don't know any of their names. I never saw them again, but they showed up in time. God was showing me, putting a little, little track in front of me to follow. And as I said, I got back to New York and I found a sponsor, began a journey through the book. And um, I'm a cradle Catholic. I have no problems with the carpet. I never, never denied the existence of God. But I was certainly agnostic without knowledge of God, without experience of God. I, I believed there was something out there. Certainly I believed in the carpenter, so that helped me a bit. But I don't think he's too interested in anything I'm doing, or this, this czar of the heavens. What does he want to do with Peter Marinelli? i got to do this. I mean, this is too vast. I've accomplished nothing in my life. Why would he be interested in me? And I come to find out that God doesn't love me if I change. God loves me so that I change. So when I'm laying in the back of an abandoned building in June of 88, tore up from the floor, God had just as much love for me then as he does right now. Whatever amount that is. I thought I had to earn my way there. If I do the steps the right way, I'll have more God. No, I'll just experience more. But God is God. He doesn't say some to you and more to you. That'd be a cruel God. That'd be a judgmental God. That's what I do to people. He's not a human. I like him. I don't like her. Keep the, that, God doesn't operate that way. He has no stepchildren. And so we get to this chapter called Chapter to Agnostics. And what my sponsor did, we didn't have cell phones back then. We had to get dictionaries. Newcomers, I'll explain what a dictionary is after the meeting. Um, <laughs> sometimes I feel so old up here. Oh, my God. Um, so we knew what the words in the big book meant. I grew up in Bensonhurst, Brooklyn. Never heard the word agnostic. If you said to me as agnostic, I thought you cursed my mother or something. I don't know. <laughs> so I looked it up. So I know what the chapter is referring to. And my sponsor walked me through, gave me assignments out of chapter to agnostics where I'm introduced to step two. It, shall, it tells me where to find God. Not out there, but in here. I heard the old timers say it's an inward journey. Now I get what they mean. The great reality is deep down within has been with me all along. I've just been looking in the wrong place. I've been in the wrong room. I'm looking for God in all the wrong places. It was here all the time. How to find God, lay aside old ideas, prejudice against this God. We all, a lot of us walk in with, well, if there is a God, then how come that? We're not going to talk about that now because your life's on the line. We can get into real wordy discussions about how come God didn't fix this. Right now, I'm the prospect who's dying of alcoholism. I need to find God now or go on to the bitter end. What's my choice? There's no choice. 
Not when I got step one all over me. There's no choice. Bill's being kind. What's our choice to be? What choice? Should I just drown in the ocean or grab the life raft the guy just threw me? Let me think about it. Get back to you 90 days. There's no choice. And why? When I see people solving their problems upon a simple reliance upon the spirit of the universe, how could I doubt the power of God? I walk into an AA meeting, three legacies meeting in Minnesota. 300 people on a Friday night, they look impeccable. And whoever was up at the podium would talk about the, 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 the greatness of God, how God took them from the scrap heap to a level of life the best they've ever known, how God's gotten them sober, God gave them a job, God put their life together, and that's all you would hear. I go to closed discussions, hear the same thing, but for the grace of God, but for the grace of God. How could I deny the existence of God in the meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous and God revitalizing, revamping, revolutionizing all our life? How could I do that? Unless I just want to not hear about God. So I can use worldly clamors against God, but I'm dying, and there's 300 people in the room saying, we came in with the same thing, but we give testimony about God, how we saved our life and got me sober. I'm hanging on. I'll figure the other stuff out later. My book tells me how, where, and why to find God. Simple instructions, and the sponsor's going to walk me through and give me some considerations. One of them they gave me, where do you believe God's working in your life right now? I'm sober. I ate. I showered. I went to a meeting. Because prior to that, I couldn't do that. So there's something going on here that suddenly I'm concerned about my hygiene, something going on with me that I'm concerned about eating because I never ate, something inside of me concerned about getting to a meeting because I feel safe here, and something inside of me that's really great keeping me away from picking up a drink. Something's going on. Because based on my track record, I should be dead or drunk, and I'm not. And people are saying, welcome, Pete, come on in. Something's happening. So I got to see that on paper. My sponsor said, write out your old conception of God. And like a lot of us, it was this punishing God. I'm going to go to hell even if I think about it. And I did a lot of things, so I know, you know bad things are going to happen to me. That's my old conception of God. I discounted the mercy of God. I just looked at what I was brought up with. He said, write about your current conception of God. What does that look like? And this, is, this was a game changer for me. I couldn't grasp my current conception of God out there. Even the carpenter, it was, it was too far away. But you were real close. And for me, it was a G-O-D, a group of drunks where I got good orderly direction. My big book tells me our own con- my own conception of God, no matter how inadequate, was sufficient. Group of drunks, good orderly direction, great outdoors. The point is I'm willing to look all- elsewhere other than me for this higher power. I'm already on my way. I've gotten traction. It's that simple. It says God's not going to make too hard. Why would God want us to jump through hoops, especially if, if we're new? The road's gonna, about to get narrower to experience great freedom. But at the beginning, God said, would any of us, Scripture says something like this, if our children were hungry, would we give them a stone to eat? God sees us crawling in here. Is he going to give us a hard time to get to know him when he's been begging to have a relationship with him? Absolutely not. But my mind says, this is going to be difficult. This means religion. I know they're tricking me. I got to go back to my religious community, shave my head, become an altar boy, do something weird. We don't even care. 
We don't care who your God is. It's just not me. It's not ourself. And the pain of step one has me looking, okay, where do I go to? And you were it. When I would walk into that three legacies meeting, as intimidated as I was, I'm wearing my brother's clothes. I'm still underweight. I got that, you know, that look we walk in with everything sunken in. And uh, the, the bag's under my eyes. I need a haircut. Um, my clothes are way too tight and too small. And I would be pinned up against the room, but just walking in. Good. I'm good for this hour. And I would listen to the speakers. And I'd sit back there and say, oh, my God, I identify with that. There was one gentleman, uh, I always love to share this story, um, I'm pinned up against the back of the room Friday night. The place is packed. And whoever he was, he was popular. And they announce him up there. And if anyone knows what Sigmund Freud looked like, that's what this guy looked like, Sigmund Freud. And I went, oh, no. This is going to be a long hour. Look at this guy. I'm thinking to myself, it's Sigmund Freud. What's, this, what's going to happen? So I have nowhere else to go. It's a meeting. I'm supposed to be here. I'm against the back of the wall nursing a cup of coffee. And this guy begins to tell his story. There were so many people online, um, I couldn't get to him. My ride was leaving, so I, had, I never got to shake his hand. I never saw him again. But... That guy, who was a professional, even sounded like really educated. You know when we hear an AA told my story? He had the alcoholic mom who committed suicide and the dad who was terribly afraid of. He grew up with uh, all boys in his family. He was the oldest, and he always felt insecure and inadequate, and he just wished his life would end until he found booze. I said, oh, my God, this guy knows me. It's alcoholism. He was sober a long time. I never got to him. But here I was thinking, what is this guy going to tell me? And God said, you sit right there. You don't move. There's a treat for you tonight. So all the outside looked different. The inside was the same. And there's another man who got to that podium and, and, and just raved about God for an hour, what God had done for him. How could I deny that if I'm new? How could I deny that if I'm around here a while and, and in this place of struggle? I'm not sure about God. I just walk into a meeting. When 9-11 happened, I was in Atlanta for business. Where I went that night was a triangle club in Atlanta. Where else am I going to go? Sit in my room and cry? I cried all day watching it. Like a lot of us, I went to a meeting that night to get around you because I feel safe here. It makes sense here. That's what I do. And maybe I can help somebody get out of my own way for a moment. It says, came to believe that a power greater than myself can restore me to sanity. It's an arrival point for me. I may not show up there right away, but I'm going to get to this place called sanity, which the 10 step says it's going to be restored to me. They promised me that. Sanity has returned. By the time I get to step 10, this thing I'm looking for has been given to me. I come to wake up and find it's been there all along. I don't need more. The process of recovery is never addition. It's removal. The less of me, the more God. The more God, less me. It's reduction. It's removal. If we really examine the steps, it's about getting me out of the way and killing off self. Self-reliance, all of it. The process of recovery isn't about we gain time in here. It isn't about a linear move. It's more of a transformational one. You'll see a cat in here with two years is lit up. You got to get around them. Someone with 10 years, like, they're still struggling. It's the soul awakens. 
So I'm going to get to this place of sanity, which means I'm insane. And for a guy like me, it wasn't only going back to that which is killing me, because I have a mind which will take me back to that which is killing me. And it'll slip in a curveball like, we'll go a sex spree, we'll go a food spree, we'll go a gambling spree, all to get me back to a drink. But it's thinking I can control life, which is uncontrollable. I'll put something spiritual on Facebook. It'll change the world. <laughs> I tried it. No one paid attention. You know, when COVID hit, I was taking a political side. It's that political party causing. I was irate about this. I know what I'll do. I'll put something really spiritual. I quoted something, this author, Rumi, and I put it up there saying, everyone's going to say, let peace begin now. <laughs> I didn't get one like on the thing. No one even cared. <laughs> it was a wake-up call. Uh, I can't control what's going on out there. That doesn't mean I'm apathetic. I don't care, but I understand who's in charge of everything. I came to believe that a power greater than myself could restore me to sanity, a survival place. I'm not even going to look if I still think I control things. I'm not even going to look if I have reservations in a lurking notion. If I still think I can do the job on my own, then why do I need God? Because inwardly, I really believe I'm, I'm God. You're about to set us up to turn things over in step three. Why would I want to turn anything over to God when I'm God? I still have control. I'll manipulate. I'll, I'll, I'll cut corners. I'll change it. I won't date these type of people. I'll date those type of people. I won't date at all. I'll switch from scotch to brandy. I'll hang out at different places. I'll get, I'll get on a, a health routine. I'm getting drunk. All of it's getting me drunk. I got drunk when all my ducks were in a row. I got drunk when it was messy. I got drunk when I had money in my pocket, which was rarely. I got drunk when I had no money in my pocket. I got drunk when I was in love, and I got drunk after a breakup. I get drunk. That's what I do. Because the solution is a double vodka now. It's, it's that default button. Bad things, drink. We'll get out for a little while. I'm not going to get drunk. I'm just going to take the edge off and chill. And you got to bail me out of jail at midnight. Or I'm robbing your house or something terrible. See, what my alcoholism does, the insanity is it doesn't tell me in a couple of days I'm going to be in serious trouble. It doesn't tell me what it's going to do to me. It tells me what it's going to do for me. It's a great liar. It is Satan in the flesh. Alcoholism. So I got to get past all that. So at some point, I will get to this place, this power greater than myself, which is going to restore me to sanity. It's interesting when we look at that, because the book doesn't say, I'm going to restore me to sanity. That God's going to do it. God could and would if he was sought. I don't do the steps, you know, go through the steps to keep myself sober. I go through the steps to, to experience the power, which is keeping me sober all along. When, it, when I'm writing my fourth step, and, I, you know, I'm in that place, and I'm a little tore up still, and the head is going, and I'm writing resentment, cause, effects. Who's keeping me sober during that part? When I got three days back here, and I'm not walking out of a meeting, and I'm saying I'm looking for God, who's keeping me sober, God? We just come to the aha moment that's been God all along. I live life forward and understand backwards. I think in my early days, as foggy as they were, something kept me getting to a meeting. Something piqued my interest about that speaker. I like that speaker. I want to go see that speaker. Came to believe that a power greater than itself could restore me to sanity. I went from being an agnostic to where I am tonight as a believer. 
but even one who's the greatest believer, even one with the greatest faith will doubt. That I do know, that's my human condition. I can say to you, I believe God. I believe in God in all his ways. I look to serve him. Uh, my, 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 my primary purpose is to uh, 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 have conscious contact with God, to please God all the time. But all of that, I still doubt and I still faith. Uh, uh, and I, my faith has holes in it. And I still doubt and have skepticism. It's my human condition. And he knows that. I go to God in the morning and say, God, I believe. Help me with my unbelief. And then I read a story about the carpenter God in Gethsemane. He doubted. He got skepticism. Make this cup pass. Are you telling me I'm not going to doubt and have skepticism? It doesn't mean I'm a poor AA or I lack faith. The humanist got in the way. The mind woke up, got in the way, said, this is not possible. God's not going to fix this. But I turn back to God. I turn back to God. I turn back to God. And as long as I'm looking to have life on my terms, I'm going to have conflict with God. I'm going to be in fear. I'm going to have doubt because it's not going my way. I'm not open to God's ways. And when I'm doing that, I'm living insanity all over again. And if I keep doing that, I pick up a drink. We hear people say, I went out over a relation. No, you went out because you're an alcoholic. I went out because I lost my job. No, you went out because you're an alcoholic. That was untreated. I'm sitting in a meeting and I'm untreated. It's like having an infection on my arm. And I walk into the doctor's office. I have an infection on my arm. Doctor will be with you, and I leave. Then I got gangrene, and I blade a doctor. I'm sitting in a meeting. I'm untreated. I'm bleeding out. I need a sponsor to stop the bleeding and get me to the healer, which is God. And suddenly, little by slowly, I'm almost out of time here, little by slowly, I start to find myself with what we'll call sane, rational thinking. Common sense become uncommon sense. My thought life is suddenly placed on a much higher plane somewhere in this world where I was to think about these things that not even a thought anymore. I'm thinking about how it can help other people. When adversity happens, I'm turning back to God. I might argue with God. I'm going to debate with God. I'm going to negotiate with God. I'm going to give him my resume, but I'm still turning to God. The sound of my self-reliance, my self-will, the sound of my defects enough to make me sick. I hear the elevator door opening, and I know they're walking to my office. Here comes self-reliance. Just got off the floor. Just got off the elevator. Here comes some defect. I know they're coming in. That's called awareness. That's a good thing. God, they're on their way. And even when I get hooked, the same thing is, God, please help. And I tell a sponsor, this is what's going on. So it's not just about the drink. I mean, it primarily is the drink. So I don't go back to drink. I need something to get in the way of that. But what about when I'm sober? What about when I'm sober and Alcoholics Anonymous 10, 15, 20, 30 years? Does step two apply? Absolutely it does. The way step one does, it just meets me where I'm at. What kind of behavior am I repeating over and over and over again, expecting different results? I've been, I've been in four bad relationships. I break up and I get into another one because I know this one's going to be different. When did you break up? Last night. When you in love? Today. <laughs> I give no time for healing. I give no time to have a relationship with God. I'm going to practice celibacy. I'm going to practice silence. I'm going to get with God. Maybe he can put someone in my life, and I'll be well enough to not have anyone in my life. I'm not dependent upon a human being, Sam, but dependent upon God. It's one or the other. I can't have it both ways. 
For me, chapter to acknowledge, my favorite chapter is a vision for you. It always has been. But to me, uh, uh, agnostic is just, um, uh, for me, one of the most powerful chapters in the book, written by an alcoholic. This is what blows my mind. Bill didn't have 30 years when he wrote this. It holds true today. Someone's lost, can't find a way. We put them in, we, they're clear about what they are, like I was. And then we take them through chapter to the agnostics, and suddenly the lights go on. I don't have to die the way I've been dying. And when we're done with that, we move into three. And suddenly, little by slowly, somewhere in four through nine, that drunk is going to get changed from the inside out. Because you're walking to a meeting, they're sitting in the back with their sponsee, taking them through chapter to the agnostics. And when the sponsee says, I'm having a problem believing, he'll say, me too, when I got here. Yeah, that's the connection. No holier than thou. A room full of broken toys leaning on each other. I'm speaking tonight, and you're kind enough to listen. I'll go to a meeting tomorrow. Someone's going to be at the podium, and I'll be there listening. My sponsor calls it pitching and catching. I lean on you, you lean on me, and somehow uh, we walk. We walk free. God could have won if he was sought. Am I seeking? That's all I got. Peace. If everybody could thank Peter again. Uh, Secretary up for the secretary's report. Hi, I'm James, and I'm your recovered alcoholic secretary tonight. In keeping with the seventh tradition, which states every group shall be fully self-supporting, declining outside contributions, the baskets are now going around. There's also QR codes on the back of, like, every other chair if you want to use Venmo. Um, I've asked um, Alicia, I think I said your name wrong, Alessa, Alicia, I did say right, to read the recovered statement. We read this notice to explain why so many people in the group identify as recovered rather than recovering and exactly what that means. This is Alicia. Um, recovered, we are not cured from alcoholism. Recovered, but not cured. That, pres that presents a conflict to some alcoholics. If we were cured, we would be able to drink responsibly. No, we are not cured. The allergic reaction to alcohol will remain with us for our lifetime, but we have been restored to sanity. That was the problem. The main problem of the alcoholic centers in his mind rather than in his body. We are now sane where alcohol is concerned. Consequently, we have recovered. Alicia, uh, 1940s style big book sponsorship from forward to the second edition of Alcoholics Anonymous. Of alcoholics who came to AA and really tried, 50% got sober at once and remained that way. 25% sobered up after some relapses. And among the remainder, those who stayed on with AA showed improvement. What we've seen, felt, come to believe, and experience is that God has not changed over time, and neither should the sacred approach back to his loving arms. The statistics above suggest a 75% success rate. Is there anybody in the room that needs a sponsor? 
You want to stand up and tell me what your name is? Hi, Hi, Bill. Hi, James. If both of you want to come up at the end of the meeting, someone will come talk to you, okay? Um, can I get a show of hands of recovered alcoholics in the room? Perfect. All of you can come and talk to these two gentlemen up at the front. Um, all right, we have some announcements. Um, Intergroup is where you can buy AA-related literature and medallions. Intergroup is also responsible for creating the where and when and scheduling the AA hotline. Stop by and pay them a visit. Broward County Institutions Committee is responsible for bringing meetings into places where people like us can't get out to an AA meeting, such as jails, detoxes, and rehabs. They meet monthly to organize the meeting schedules at the 12-step house. Do we have any BCIC members here tonight? Perfect. Brian's here, and so is Kelly. You can talk to them after the meeting if you have any questions. Uh, we have some upcoming service. Um, the Grapevine, you get a free book when you pay for it, apparently. Uh, sorry, filling, filling in tonight. Uh, October 27th and 29th, second annual Bull in the China Shop Corral. There's flyers in the back. And Peter's going to be with us for another 10, nine weeks, something like that. Um, and please join us on Monday nights for the Big Book study where the meeting, uh, the Big Book comes alive, fellowships at 6.30, meeting starts at 7.15, it's upstairs on the third floor. Uh, we also have CDs, mugs, large print Big Books, little red books, and Big Book dictionaries for sale in the back. I'm pretty sure we're running a sale for two mugs for 15 tonight if you're interested in the mugs. Uh, we meet every Thursday starting at 7.15. Can't wait to see you next week. Thanks. Uh, thank you, James. Uh, we have tonight's session and all past speaker podcasts online for free at alcoholicsandgod.org. I'd like to invite everybody to our Monday night big book study up on the third floor. And anyone wishing to thank tonight's speaker can line up down the center aisle. And let's close with the Lord's Prayer. Our Father.
shining through But when you crying Let it shine, this little light of mine, I'm gonna let it shine, this little light of mine. 
Chase, here's that song you've been asking me for for a million years. I finally pulled it out the pulled it out the corners of my mind, and um, here you go. Nothing could come 
God bless. I love you, Mike Chase. Bye.
Just won't set me free. Well, clap your hands if you leave me too. 